You are listening to Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 FM LP, and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. The very first thing I did was check everybody's rifle to make sure that nobody in my company had fired. Fortunately for everybody, some very rational and heroic professors showed up there and talked some sense into both sides. Just sit down. Sit down, please. Just sit down. We know they call them more truth than Sit down. We sat down in rows on this slope, and it was, you know, like, I felt like I was um, in class. I don't care whether you've never listened to anyone before in your lives. I am begging you right now, if you don't disperse right now, they're going to move in and it can only be a slaughter. Would you please listen to me? Jesus Christ, I don't want to be a part of this. Glenn Frank was begging us um, to leave and he was crying and I had never seen a man cry before. So we did. And, and we picked these directions that, uh, that if the guards started shooting again, somebody would be alive to tell the story. Well, it was 50 years ago this month that the murders at Kent State and Jackson State took place. In a moment, we will remember and discuss these events. But my name is Tom Gross, and I am joined through Zoom by Harvey Bennett and Jim Vogelmuth. And we are members of Veterans for Peace, which is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace by using our experiences and lifting our voices for the causes of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Our network is composed of over 140 chapters worldwide. Our radio show is on stations across the country. We are now meeting through Zoom, so if you would like to be part of our next meeting, it will be the second Tuesday of the month. So please join us. Remember, you can get a copy of the show by just going to our Facebook page. Just search Veterans for Peace Chapter 089, or please follow us on Twitter VFP Radio Nashville and at VFP 89 Radio. And to find any of our shows from the past, just go to bit.ly slash capital V, capital F, capital P, Radio Hour. Also, if you are a station online or on the air and would like to send, to send you our show, just text your email to 703-403-6135. If you have a question for us while on the air or an idea for another show, send us also a text at 703-403-6135. We will try to get to your questions while on the air. If you are one of our nationwide affiliates, just text us and we will get to your question or suggestion next show. 
Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. Tom and I are once again doing the show remotely and in advance. And again, we are pleased to have Harvey Bennett. But while you're at it, look for a virtual activities. There are all kinds of virtual activities, concerts, meetings, as the normal citizen activist manages to navigate the online technology. Also, something new, something fun. You can join a caravan of cars, staying safely distanced, but making a point. I joined one with the whole family sponsored by Workers' Dignity here in Nashville on May Day to highlight the inequities and hostilities that workers today are facing from construction to meatpacking to the front lines. Over 50 cars snaked our way through downtown Nashville. It was, it was really good. It was fun. Okay, so here we are, May of the year 2020. gas first started down the commons, then the guard moved up on both sides of Taylor Hall and forced the kids off the commons. Then one group, I don't know how many there were, 50 maybe, perhaps more, perhaps less, moved down into the practice football field. After you feed them, then what will we do? They've will got, you ask them to leave? They've got grievances, they've got demands, the demands on both sides. We have to talk. And then there were a whole lot of kids around them. A few kids were throwing sticks and stones, but that was only a handful, not more than 10, 15. And then the guard shot some tear gas up on the hill to disperse the crowd, and the kids picked it up and threw it back. Guard will make a perimeter, a circle, right out in here. From the right, you have to keep moving out. It's got a big circle around here. You don't talk during a state of emergency, Mike. You know that. Come well, I'm on. Sorry, but we'll I don't talk want as soon as shot. we get this I don't settled want down. People shot on this campus. This is a citizen of this Who wants people All shot? Right, but they're sitting down. quietly. Okay, will you ask them to leave? sudden I heard the shooting. And then I saw people dropping to the ground and then I fell to the ground also because <laughs> I couldn't walk anymore. And we are 50 years on from the tragic events of the first two weeks of May 1970. As those events reach 50 years, most people do not remember them, don't feel them, don't understand them. They might say, oh yeah, I saw pictures, I heard of that. Well, today we are going to try to remember May of 1970, the first two weeks. But first I want you to think about these names and ages. Allison Krauss, 19. Jeff Miller, 20. Sandy Shure, 20. Bill Schrader, 19. They were all killed at Kent State. Killed. By National Guard. And then remember, 
Philip Gibbs, 21. James Green, 17. They were killed by highway patrol and police at Jackson State. Do you remember when you were 19? We're going to start off with a clip that Harvey and I did to remember Kent State in our show in May of 2016. Harvey, Kent State. Yes, lest we forget. Yesterday, as I mentioned, marks the 46th anniversary of the Kent State Massacre, when Ohio National Guard troops fired 67 rounds at unarmed student demonstrators hundreds of yards away, killing four and injuring nine, one of whom was permanently paralyzed. The demonstration was a continuation of two days and nights of student unrest across the country, including at Kent State, in reaction to President Nixon's televised address on April 30th announcing the invasion of Cambodia, marking a new expansion of the 15-year Vietnam War, which he had promised to end when running for president in 1968. In the two weeks following Nixon's announcement, 30 ROTC buildings across the country, including at Kent State, were burned down by enraged students. Over 450 campuses closed across the country as a nationwide student strike ensued. On May 2nd, the mayor of Kent, Ohio, had imposed a curfew, and Governor James Rhodes ordered the Ohio National Guard to occupy the campus. During the Vietnam War, the National Guard was a safe haven for those seeking to avoid the draft, but was mostly only available for people with political or some other connections. Example, George W. Bush? He's one example. On Sunday, May 3rd, Governor Rhodes visited Kent State and described the demonstrating students there as quote, revolutionaries and the worst type of people in America, worse than brown shirts and the communist element, and that he would use whatever force necessary to drive them out. He was running for Republican nomination for senator at the time on a law and order platform, with the state primary coming up the following week. By noon on Monday, May 4th, About 1,500 students had gathered on campus to protest the occupation by the National Guard and the Cambodian invasion. The The National Guard adjutant general had them ordered to disperse by bullhorn, which the students defied. The National Guard troops were then ordered to advance on the students and forcibly disperse them using tear gas, and armed with loaded M1 rifles with bayonets. The students retreated, and the National Guard troops pursued them, lobbing tear gas canisters into the crowd. Finally, when the adjutant general was satisfied that the crowd had been dispersed, he ordered the troops to retreat along their original course back to their original position. 
at the top of a hill. As the guard reached the crest of the hill, members of Troop G suddenly turned simultaneously to face a crowd of students in a parking lot. They took aim and fired a volley of the 67 shots into the crowd. We've already learned the names of those who were killed. Nine were wounded. All were full-time students in good standing. Today, Jim Wolgameth is going to recall his reaction to learning of the shooting, and then I'll give it uh, give you mine. Jim? Well, Harvey, you know, uh, I was on my ship off the Mekong Delta um, in the middle of that mess. And uh, we get word over Armed Forces Radio, God bless them. Um, they did a good job reporting it, and I was sick, to, sick in my stomach. I, um, I can recall just pacing, pacing around my workspace. I was in, in the radar room, uh, something called Combat Information Center, and um, I, I just was pacing, and I couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't understand what our government, what this group of National Guards were doing. And I, so, I felt so helpless. So what I did was I, uh, I wrote a letter to the editor, to um, the Butler Eagle, because I came from Butler, Pen- uh, Butler County, Pennsylvania. And I wrote a letter to the editor. I had no idea. No, it's the first time I'd ever done anything like that. Um, <clears throat> and I didn't follow any of the rules. I didn't keep it to the right amount of words, but it got printed. And uh, I didn't realize it got printed, but uh, I got a call, believe it or not, from my mother in western pennsylvania saying you're in the paper did you, is this what you said and i said yeah this is what i said so um from 46 years ago here's my letter to the editor i'm 20 years old and i'm third class radarman in the united states navy overseas i'm home ported in japan on an lst and we often visit vietnam After viewing the living conditions of those poor people in the Orient, mostly in Vietnam, I can say that I'm very glad that I was brought up in the United States, where I never knew a hungry day, never had to bathe in a river that was probably dirtier than I was. I always had a warm bed and television. These so-called towns make our ghettos look like luxury housing. Yes, I'm glad I'm from the U.S. I just wish I could be proud I was. I'm sick of reading about the violence on the college campuses. Why is a crowd of mostly onlookers and class goers shot into? Why is a crowd of mostly, well, why is it that students are constantly put under martial law and beaten and pushed around ruthlessly? I can understand why all are treated like criminals for the crimes of possibly a few radicals. The youth of the day is much more informed and concerned about the situations around this world than any other generation has been. Yet there is no way that they can have a voice in who the people in the government are to be. Remember, in those days, the voting age was 21. So you could go get killed, but you couldn't vote. 
For the time being, it seems that the standards of the freedom set forth in the Constitution are collapsing. I swear to God, I won't live in a country that kills innocent people. I will not take a chance of going back to college in the U.S. if this situation continues. The radicals and instigators should be found and prosecuted for their crimes. I have seen what bullets and shrapnel can do to people, and I don't want it at home, too. I wish I could really have a desire to return to the U.S. Canada, however, is peaceful. If I'm misinformed, will someone please enlighten me on the truth? And that's where I end it. And believe it or not, I got um, three letters. Three letters from the citizenry around Butler, Pennsylvania, in which they were basically saying it was the student's fault. It was the student's fault. Now, let's see. Unarmed, long-haired, bell-bottomed students versus draft-dodging, uniformed uh, soldiers with tear gas and M1s, and it's the student's fault. That just didn't float. It couldn't float for me. So, uh, anyway, that... That's pretty much that. That was my anger, and as I do, was doing some research and looking up some old things, as you can tell, I'm still really angry. Harvey, tell us about yours. Well, uh, thanks, Jim. Uh, I can't, I can't match that one. But <clears throat> when that when Kent State happened, I was in uh, Berkeley, California. I had. Uh, Finished my military service about six months before that, uh, mustered out at San Francisco, and I was working for the post office. A wildcat postal strike had been settled about a month prior, and a bunch of us at the post office said, well, you know, in response to this, what went on at Kent State, we we need to show solidarity, so... A bunch of us decided to strike for that purpose, and we picketed in front of the post office wearing black armbands. We did this for several days. We felt that we'd made our point, and we took our outrage to some of the other many demonstrations going on uh, in Berkeley and in the Bay Area. But uh, I think the the whole country uh, was riveted by by all that. There was, uh, I noticed uh, doing the research on this, that a a survey, Gallup poll taken a few days after the shootings, uh, 58% of those responding blamed the students. 11% had uh, blamed the National Guard. None of them blamed President Nixon for invading Cambodia. And that's just shocking, but I believe... um with the time of history under our belt, I think the, 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 the folks that are culpable, the National Guard and President Nixon, um, that, has, that has taken hold. I don't think you blame the students, especially when you look at the, the students, um, the student activities com- compared to the other student activities and the students that were killed and hurt, all in good standing, and they fired indiscriminately into a crowd of kids. Two of the students killed were not even part of the demonstration. They were just going to class. Yeah. What a shame. Yeah. 
Um, and it also give it some perspective to realize that uh, two years later, President Nixon would resign his office in disgrace. Yeah, karma. After calling the students bums. Mm-hmm. Who was the bum? Yeah. <clears throat> so what happened after this uh, in terms of legal action? Federal charges were filed uh, against troops who had actually fired their weapons. Uh, but there was no evidence presented uh, that would implicate the guard commander or anyone else of giving the order to fire. A student had made a tape recording of the demonstration from his dorm window, and that tape <clears throat> was used in the trial, uh, but only to uh, present the actual gunshots and, and the sound of the gunshots. <clears throat> None of the troops were convicted of any offense on the basis of their testimony that they feared for their lives. A civil trial in uh, feared for their lives. Were they armed? Their lives, yeah. yeah. Were they armed? Did they have rifles? The students. Yeah, the students. Is the no, student? No, it, no. There was a rumor about a sniper. Yeah, a rumor it started afterwards, but there's yeah. never any evidence that there was anything like that. I thought <clears throat> a civil trial in 1975 resulted in Governor Rhodes and the National Guard being found non-culpable by a nine-to-three decision. Again based only on the tape recordings of the gunshots. In 1979, the families of the dead and injured students agreed to an out-of-court settlement and apologies from the officials involved. In 2006, one of the wounded students, Alan Canfora, <clears throat> discovered a CD copy of the student tape at the Yale Archives and heard a clear audio of an order to fire preceding the gunshots. This was confirmed by archival experts, and on May 1st, 2007, he presented the new evidence at a press conference. This resulted in calls for a new trial in the Cleveland Plain Dealer and news outlets nationwide. Finally, in April of 2012, U.S. Assistant Attorney General Thomas Perez reported that the FBI investigation of the new evidence was, quote, inconclusive, and therefore there would be no new trial. So, Tom Perez of DNC infamy. What a surprise. Well, Tom, you've heard Harvey's in my story. What's your story? Well, uh, the way I viewed the event at the time was it, it wasn't terribly shocking, but I think the reason the event itself was so uh, mind-boggling and kind of game-changing is because uh, to some degree, I think the anti-war movement was a little naive at that point. And certainly the students at Kent State, I think, didn't immediately view as uh, troops on campus as people that would kill them. Uh, but some of it is the context of when the event occurred and where it occurred. Uh, I remember, you know, kind of knowing that if, if that event had happened and I didn't know where it was, I would have said, well, it was probably out in California or on the East Coast. I think I was shocked that it was at Kent State. Uh, but reflecting on it now and some of the history I know, it, it was set up for a bad outcome 
and you can look at some of the things around the event. Uh, one, the, the governor of Ohio, Rhodes, was at the end of his term, but he was running for the Senate. And he was behind uh, another politician named Taft considerably. And he came out and and basically said, you know, we're going to take care of this campus unrest. We're not going to treat the symptom. We're going to eradicate the problem. And, it, you know, it was a speech and, and a, an activity that he engaged in for his own political uh, welfare. Uh, so you had that, and then you had the National Guard, which wasn't too far from the campus. Uh, they rolled in uh, relatively unprepared because they went to the armory to get these weapons, and the only thing left in the armory uh, were M1 rifles from World War II. Um, and on top of that, uh, they they ended up uh, using tear gas and the management of the National Guard uh, had underestimated what was going to go on, and they actually ran out of tear gas in the second day, and that's part of what precipitated them actually using the rifles because they had no tear gas left to use against the students. So it was like a perfect storm of uh, a lot of angst over what was happening in the bombing of Cambodia, and at the same time, it was uh, students who were, uh, you know, maybe for some of the first time engaged in um, what really was a nationwide student strike. People have forgotten that that was going on all over the country, but uh, I don't think it had until recently started at Kent State in that year. Um, and so you, you had uh, these guardsmen who were not well-trained. On top of that, they were wearing gas masks because they were using gas. And I happened to be a veteran who actually tried to use a weapon with a gas mask on. You can't imagine how impossible that is. Um, and and so uh, everything about the event was going to lead to, you know, a massacre. On top of that, the faculty uh, was more or less absent, except for a few members that probably saved students during and after the shooting. They managed to get them out of what became a war zone. Uh, I actually talked to someone who was a veteran that I served with uh, a few months after the incident, and he told me a lot about the, the political environment on the campus and what actually went on, and it was terrifying. So I was watching the Kent State University uh, commemoration, and they had a couple of clips there too, and I thought I'd share just a couple from uh, David Crosby and Jerry Casal. David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Jerry Casal of Devo. So take a listen. What do I think about Kent State? I think that when a country starts shooting its own children in the middle of their school campus, in public, 
in the middle of the afternoon when they are unarmed, when they are doing something legal, when they're doing something that they had a constitutional right to be doing. You have a constitutional right to assemble and protest. Yes, you do. And they were all standing there doing that. And somebody convinced those kids in the National Guard that it was the right thing to do to fire over 100 rounds at them, these unarmed kids. I think the governor, I think the head of the guard, I think the person who ordered those kids to carry live rounds should all still be in jail for murder. Murder. Because that's what it was. It was murder. Unjustifiable, unexcusable, inexcusable, uh, completely wrong on every level. And the reason it happened is very clear, you know, excessive uh, rhetoric from the president and the governor and people uh, painting these kids as, what are they called? Commie spies, outside agitators. They weren't anything outside. They were your children going to school protesting a war they didn't believe in, legally. And they were killed. I can't get that out of my head. I'm not ever going to get it out of my head. When I sing Ohio, I mean it. Greetings. I'm Gerald Casale, KSU alumnus 1970. I'm most known as the founder of the Artwave 1980s band Devo, where I was a principal songwriter, stage show designer, and video director. As a former member of Students for a Democratic Society and a survivor of the attack on students by the National Guard on May 4, 1970, I was very much looking forward to participating in the 50th anniversary events commemorating the students who were killed and wounded. After 50 years, it seemed that finally there could be some critical mass recognition and a national stage acknowledging the grave injustice that was perpetrated on us that day. Clearly, those students who lost their lives exercising their constitutional First Amendment rights deserve some justice that they have been thus far denied. They are victims of illegitimate authority who should not have died in vain. But just as our lives were turned upside down that day in 1970, and the course of history altered in a flash, so it is now with COVID-19 that these momentous plans were thwarted. So here we are reduced to video messaging as we remain separated under social distancing directives. This turn of events is beyond frustrating. And for me, it dredges up vividly painful memories of May 4th tragedy itself. I was in the middle of the protest that began at noon on May 4th. We had played into a trap hatched by Governor Rhodes and the university administration. They had decided to declare martial law on campus just prior to the protest. In case you don't know, martial law is a go-to weapon that suspends First Amendment rights to assembly and free speech and more. As a member of the KSU Honors College Scholarship Program, I had become friends with two of the murdered students, Honors freshmen Jeffrey Miller and Alison Krauss. 
<clears throat> martial law allowed the National Guard to order us to disperse and then to tear gas us and shoot and kill some of us when we didn't willingly obey their orders. Afterwards, the class action suits brought by the parents of the killed and wounded students went nowhere because martial law had been declared and were therefore, by definition, we were fair game. We were there that day to sound the alarm that the Constitution and democratic rule of law were being usurped by an authoritarian president, President Nixon, who had demonstrated repeatedly that he thought he was beyond the law. Now he had expanded the heinous Vietnam War into Cambodia without an act of Congress. He was thumbing his nose at the checks and balances of the three co-equal branches of government. If this sounds familiar, it should. I thought that living through the horror that day and the three years that followed, climaxing in Nixon's well-deserved impeachment would be the worst of America I would ever experience. Now, self-quarantined, reading and watching the news as this country careens towards a dictatorship that will exacerbate the pain and suffering of most of its citizenry to the enrichment of the one percenters and enemies of liberty, I realized I was wrong. 50 years later, nothing has changed. The problem remains the same. In fact, it has only grown worse. Those in government who pose a threat to democracy from within never rest. They have more power than ever. Being on the wrong side of history seems to energize them. Only righteous indignation and bold action can check their vile trampling of our human rights. I ask everyone to rise up and do whatever they can by any means necessary to stop this diabolical march to right-wing madness. Please do it for Jeffrey and Allison and all the students who sacrificed themselves that day in 1970 speaking truth to power. As Devo warned in 1980 in our song, Freedom of Choice, freedom of choice is what you got. Freedom from choice is what you want. Please go out there and prove us wrong before it's too late. But you know, Harvey, Kent State was not the only incident that happened in May. Well, the tragedy at Jackson State, on the other hand, <clears throat> which occurred only 10 days later, is mentioned, if at all, is more or less a footnote. Despite the even more egregious violence perpetrated against these black students by the Mississippi Highway Patrol and Jackson Police, I found a headline on a 2010, May 2010 NPR story that kind of says it all. Jackson State. A tragedy widely forgotten. Well, we could ask by whom, certainly not the people of uh, Jackson uh, State or their uh, <clears throat> bereaved families, but the other question would be, why is it forgotten? Is the media doing their job? <laughs> so as a result, I figured any one of us could just randomly ask uh, people we encounter, especially adults born since 1970, which is going to be most of them, <clears throat> uh, about Kent State. And uh, and most of them, I think, are going to say, oh, yeah, uh, Ford had in Ohio and blah, blah. <clears throat> They've heard of it. They know basically what it is. Uh, they may not have made any emotional connection with it. 
but then when you say Jackson State, you just get a blank stare, or huh? So <clears throat> that's the difference. And we're hoping today to uh, try to uh, maybe correct that by restoring some balance and acknowledging the significance of both of these tragic events, <clears throat> and primarily by uh, raising awareness uh, of the Jackson State uh, massacre uh, due to the uh, sheer racist barbarity of the state violence against those students in Jackson, and by uh, also trying to provide some uh, context uh, to help in our understanding of both of these. So <clears throat> my uh, words for today uh, have been drawn in a significant part from an article that just happened to appear in this week's edition of New Yorker magazine, which I get. <clears throat> it's an article by Jill Lepore, who's written a number of excellent articles <laughs> for The New Yorker. Her piece is called Blood on the Green, Kent State and the War that Never Ended. And so, you know, it's basically, the uh, piece is, is basically referring to Kent State. But she begins the article uh, with a description of the blood-soaked ancestry and all-too-brief life of Philip Lafayette Gibbs, a 21-year-old married father of two with another one on the way, <clears throat> a junior in political science at Jackson State College and shot in the back and killed by police in the early hours of May 15, 1970. His and his wife's parents both had been sharecroppers. So most of the rest of the five-page article really delves into the madness of the Kent State Massacre and responses to that. <clears throat> but it does provide context uh, by referencing uh, other similarly uh, un unforgivable events of that time, such as the killing of six black protesters shot in the back by police in Augusta, Georgia, which occurred only a few days after the Kent State killings. The hard hat violent counter-riot stage against students uh, that were protesting in Manhattan uh, following the funeral of one of the four Kent State students. The 1969 Governor Reagan ordered violent dispersal of student squatters, and they weren't all students, but uh, essentially squatters in a Berkeley park uh, in 1969 that killed one and injured over 100. And before that event happened, Ronald Reagan was promising to <clears throat> take care of campus unrest, even if it took a bloodbath. And he said, you know what, if it takes a bloodbath, let's get it over with. <laughs> this is Ronald Reagan speaking. <laughs> President Reagan, right. Um, and then the Orangeburg, South Carolina massacre of 1968, in which three students at the South Carolina State College, a black institution, were killed by troops or <coughs> troopers. And we actually covered this on our show uh, during Black History Month. Mm -hmm. um, 
a, a year or two ago. I can't remember which, but uh, it's amazing how few people that I talked to had ever heard of it. So uh, anyway, reading this article, I learned, or at least was reminded, that the uh, <clears throat> report of Nixon's 1970 Scranton Commission on Campus Unrest, which was their administration's uh, response to these horrendous events, <clears throat> concluded that the shootings were unjustified and that campus unrest was really just a continuation of student unrest and demonstrations and grievances, uh, which began uh, focused on the civil rights movement, segregation, Jim Crow, in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960. Uh, I don't know if they mentioned it, but that was also <laughs> happening in Nashville at the same time. <clears throat> but that these were rooted in our nation's long history of popular struggles against racism and social injustice. So Nixon, of course, received the report and immediately threw it in the trash <clears throat> and buried the findings. So as we know all too well, none of these victims of state violence ever received as much as a gesture toward justice. No charges were filed against any of the uh, troops or National Guard. <clears throat> so the article closes with a chilling quote from Martin Luther King in response to criticism of his 1967 Beyond Vietnam speech um, in which he uh, basically frames the uh, Vietnam War is not the problem but a symptom of a deeper problem and he, which he referred to as uh, the triple uh, <clears throat> evils of racism, militarism, and materialism. Mm -hmm. And he said that uh, if we do not act, we shall surely be, be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, strength without sight. So, I don't know about uh, you guys or any of our listeners, but I'm personally not seeing any light at the end of the corridor these days. So let's listen to some eyewitness accounts of the Jackson State Massacre. In the spring of 1970, campus communities across this country were characterized by a chorus of protests and demonstrations. The issues were the escalation of the war in Vietnam and the U.S. invasion of Cambodia, the ecology, racism and repression, and the inclusion of the experiences of women and minorities in the educational system. No institution of higher education was left untouched by the confrontations and continuous calls for change. At Jackson State College in Jackson, Mississippi, there was the added issue of historical racial intimidation and harassment by white motorists along Lynch Street, a major thoroughfare that divided the campus and linked West Jackson to downtown. Lynch Street, where I'm standing now, a popular thoroughfare for whites traveling in and out of the city. 
It could be said that years of confrontations between students and motorists driving down Lynch Street and the continued fight for civil rights were two integral factors that cultivated the atmosphere from which the Jackson State tragedy occurred. We were constantly subjected to racist taunts. Uh, the women were uh, always uh, shouted out and some sexual uh, sexist remarks was made to them. And uh, I think one of the uh, speakers for this year's uh, occasion, uh, Mamie uh, Crockett, uh, was hit by a car when she was crossing the streets here uh, one time here at Jackson State. So, yeah, civil rights, uh, this being Jackson, Mississippi, uh, a lot of civil rights activities, the freedom rides, the, uh, the arrest of a large amount of students, Meg Evers lived here, uh, the COFO office, which was the spearhead of a lot of civil rights organizations, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, core to Congress for Racial Equality, they, they all had hubs here in Jackson, Mississippi. So for sure, uh, civil rights had to be a part of the equation that led up to the tragedy here in May of 1970. On May 14th and 15th, 1970, Jackson State students were protesting these issues, as well as the May 4th, 1970 tragedy at Kent State University in Ohio. Four Kent State students were killed by Ohio National Guardsmen. I came driving through here just checking things out. There were students all over the place down here on the corner in front of Alexander Hall. And all of a sudden they started throwing bricks and rocks through my windows. And uh, broke the windows out in uh, this Plymouth station wagon I was in, a marked WJTV news vehicle. I saw this car coming through and, and some bottles and, and rocks were being thrown at the car. Okay, man, you know, let's everybody calm down and leave it alone, you know, let's stop. Went home, I stayed behind the campus on Morehouse and Cleveland Avenue in the apartments there. Came back that evening, there was another little incident. But everything settled down. Everything had settled down. That next night, all of it started on the 14th, so the 15th was when we heard the marching. And we, we watched as they approached the campus uh, and were marching as if they were marching to war. They were in, in lines. It uh, appeared to be hundreds of them. Uh, I don't have a, a count, but as I go back, I know there was a lot of them. And we watched them from the window, and they marched down Lynch Street. And as they, they came from the west, and um, they passed by the young men with the fire, and they came, um, continued till they got to the front of Alexander Hall. And we came across the hall and uh, looked out of my uh, dormitory room window. It was the Highway Patrol and City Police. Everybody on both sides of the campus, they came up Lynch Street. I was at the fence on the south side of Lynch Street in front of B.F. Roberts Dining Hall, along with other friends of mine. And on the North side were students laying on the ground in front of Alexander Hall and just, you know, hanging out the windows. Accounts differ as to what happened. Some students say the police advanced in a line, warned them, then opened fire. 
Others said the police abruptly opened fire on the crowd. Police claimed they spotted a powder flare in the Alexander Hall West third floor stairwell window and opened fire in self-defense on the dormitory only. Two local television reporters present at the shooting did not agree that a shot was fired and were uncertain of the direction. A radio reporter claimed to have seen an arm and a pistol extending from a dormitory window. The only communication I heard back from the police officers came from a highway patrolman who stepped up with a megaphone and, and said, ladies and gentlemen, may I have, have your attention? attention and it was right after that that the shooting started. Wow. The bottle broke in the middle of, of uh, the police officers and they started firing. By that time, one of the students threw a bottle and the bottle burst. All hell broke loose. Shoot. Whatever actually happened, the police opened fire and continued firing for more than 30 seconds. The students scattered, some running for the trees in front of the library, but most scrambling for the Alexander Hall West End door. And when they went to kneel, I ducked, well, I dived under the, the uh, trees that was on the side of our uh, where it's all. And they had me pinned down by the wall and I couldn't get up. And bullets was flying all over my head. Uh, it was just like um, something out of a movie. When you're watching a war movie and you hear uh, hundreds of guns shooting. And when we realized that we were being fired upon, we um, turned and, and fell to the floor. I remember feeling uh, something hot hitting my back. And when they shot, I, we pushed right through that door. That door right there. And we went through that, we just, you hit a bullet popping off that wall like firecrackers. And so I just zigzagging like, we were lucky many of us didn't get killed. If I had to start down low, uh, shooting low, I wouldn't have been here today to tell you about it. They would have gotten me. And all you could hear was, oh, 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 oh. I was on the ground. And I kept seeing all this fire going over my head, and I kept pulling the grass so I could get where I needed to get. There was screaming and cries of terror mingled with the noise of sustained gunfire as the students struggled en masse to get through the glass and double doors. A few students were trampled. Others, struck by buckshot or bullets, fell only to be dragged inside or left moaning in the grass. Somebody howled out, stop firing. Well, hold your fire and I got up and ran into the dormitory. Having heard the shootings and, and, and smelling the gunfire and gun smoke in the air, uh, you would have thought that more than two students had been killed. And uh, it was a miracle that, uh, tragically, it was uh, just uh, Philip Gibbs and James Green. Philip Lafayette Gibbs, 21, a junior pre-law major and father of an 18-month-old son, lay dead 50 feet east of the west wing door of Alexander Hall. Uh, Philip Gibbs. Across the street, behind the line of police and highway patrolmen, 17-year-old James Earl Green was walking home from work at a local grocery store. Stopped by the action, Green was slammed in the right side of his chest by a single buckshot in front of B.F. Roberts Hall. James Earl Green was a student at Jim Hill High School, a senior who had hopes of uh, going to run track and uh, participate in the upcoming Olympics. Uh, he was on his way home from a part-time job and uh, he was shot uh, there on the other side of uh, Lynch Street. Hey, I don't think 
there's any way you can justify firing 460 shots at a girl's dormitory uh, for 29 and a half seconds. I, I, don't, I don't see anything that justifies that. Uh, Dr. Peoples told me earlier today that uh, what it amounted to was young black people like were out here that night in 1970. We're not accustomed to taking anything from law enforcement officers. They were young and different than the older days. That they were not afraid of law enforcement officers, not afraid to call them a pig and to shout insults at them. And those law enforcement officers out here had never heard that from black people at close range. And they were all white. Uh, Dr. Peoples is of the belief that that's what caused what happened out here is that uh, the white officers were just not accustomed to, to what happened. And uh, in his word, as he described it to me today, it was a police riot. Mississippi has always been a state that was very overt when it came to blacks and whites. Uh, certain things you can't prove because certain things are hidden. I think it had to do with who the individuals were, meaning black students, also meaning that it was a black institution, also meaning that it was in a black neighborhood, also meaning that the retaliation of what had transpired that day and the day before, white folks, white motorists, throwing bottles, hollering out, uh, obscenities, uh, the N-word, and eggs over the years and during that period of time had a lot to do with it. It was racial, in my opinion. It was the temper of the times, and, 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 and looking back in retrospect, knowing what they did at Kent State University to white students, uh, the atmosphere in this country uh, was against student protesters, and every campus in this country was in an uproar. So here was an opportunity for Mississippi law enforcement officials, and we know the reputation that Mississippi law enforcement has, especially when it comes to dealing with black people, and they had an opportunity uh, to shoot up in a, a, a women's dormitory. Uh, with students uh, in front of it and uh, uh, not caring about the loss of lives. The media coverage of this was very poor. Uh, <clears throat> it made national news. <clears throat> NBC, CBS were both in here the next morning and I was working for the CBS affiliate at the time. CBS used our coverage of it and did their own. So did NBC. I don't recall ABC being here, but I feel sure they were. Uh, but it, it was it it got nowhere near the coverage of Kent State, for example. Uh, Kent State was a much larger story than Jackson State was, and I never understood that because you think this was purely a racist conflict. You you got to ask that question. You got to wonder about that. That Kent State got all the attention it did, and, and it was a predominantly white school. And, and here Jackson State didn't get nearly the attention Kent State did, and it's a predominantly black school. You, it's got to make you wonder. Today, 42 years later, no apologies, no accountability, no closure, and no justice for the Gibbs Green tragedy. The eyes and ears of these victims and witnesses make it profoundly clear that the memories of May 14th and 15th will always live on. Uh, those eyewitness accounts of Jackson State
uh, I mean, it's terrifying, um, but also to also realize that the poor, the second, the second murder, the second killing was from a kid, a high schooler who was walking behind. So mm -hmm. some, some state yeah. trooper, some um, highway patrolman had to turn around and say to himself, I'm going to pick off a black kid. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't say black kid. No. I'm no. sure you heard some of the, I mean, I heard some of the police radio stuff back and forth during that. I don't know if you heard it. There's a bunch yeah, of audios out there of it. And basically they're all the N-word. That's the only way they describe any of them. Yeah. We got yeah, three, and I, we got, I think we, the reason some of that didn't really get exposed in the media is what we were talking about, that Kent State is middle-class kids being massacred, whereas even in 1970, black people being shot by, by civil authorities was, was not uncommon. Right. Yeah. So we have to leave it there. But Harvey, Tom, and I discussed a lot more and tried to relate those events of 1970 with the events of today. But I kept telling Harvey we needed a two-hour show, but that was then. I guess we will just pick up some of our comments and share them with you next week on the actual anniversary of Jackson State murders. I want to share thanks with both Kent State and Jackson State for putting together wonderful histories of their tragic events. Also, PBS did a great job with their documentary, The Day the 60s Died. All of these are available on YouTube and are truly important. So with that, I bet you expect that we will finish up the show with Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Nope. There's another song, The Jackson Kent Blues by Steve Miller Band. Now that's over seven minutes long. And so we are going to play you an abridged version. But find the real version in, on YouTube also. So with that, please, for the sake of James and Philip, Sandy, Jeff, Bill, and Allison, remember, remember them. And do something. Like register and vote. Who knows, maybe they never got a chance to vote. Have a good week. Continue to stay safe, and we'll talk to you the next week.